Welcome back. This is program 11. By now, you've started eliciting strategies and you have sensory acuity and some eye patterns and you've been practicing rapport. So we're now going to continue on with strategies. We've learned how to elicit them and utilize them and test them, but now we need to get into some more of the nitty gritty, the meat and potatoes of what makes a strategy well formed and what makes it so that it really works well. And then in addition to that, once we're clear about that, what makes it so that we can, or what are the things that we want to look for in the process of installing or changing strategies? And we've had fun with strategies so far and we've learned how to elicit them and utilize them, but I think we need to get into more of the nuts and bolts of what makes a strategy well-formed. So turn to page 56 in your workbook. There are some structural well-formedness conditions for strategy, which means that the strategy is well-formed if it meets these conditions. It first has to have a well-defined representation of the outcome. A lot of times a strategy will run without a well-defined outcome. And if you don't have a well-defined outcome, the strategy will produce a nothing result. I think a strategy should use at least three of the major representational systems. Now here it says all three, but that means a visual, an auditory and a kinesthetic. And if at all possible, there should be at least three points in every loop, which sometimes if a strategy loops too tightly, a person can get into a situation where they're caught and they stay in a strategy. I've talked to some people who've perhaps had some points that were a little too tight on their loops. One of my friends, Jenny, uh, she would get into a little ADK. So she'd talk to herself, then get the feelings, then talk to herself, then get the feelings and then get the feelings. And it just kept getting stuck and going round and round. So three points in a loop allows you to pop out and every loop needs to include an exit point, which Jenny also didn't have. So the strategy should go external after a certain number of steps or a certain amount of time. And it should use the least number of steps to get the outcome. So personally, I like three or four, no more than that in terms of numbers of steps. So strategies should have a logical sequence with no steps missing. That is, you should, as you look at it, get a sense that it's very logical and you can follow it through and make sense of how it works. It needs to have internal and external sensory modalities to get the desired outcome, which means there needs to be some external and some internal modalities or representational systems that occur both internally and externally. It should preserve the positive byproducts and eliminate negative consequences. So a person who continually runs a certain attitude that has negativity will end up being a negative person. So we need to make sure that we have positive byproducts and positive consequences. The strategy should follow the tote model and it should minimize bad feelings. I think we talked a little bit about that already. Functional well-formedness conditions include a trigger which starts the process and carries with it the final criteria, an operation to all to the present state to bring it closer to the desired state, a test which compares the present state to the desired state based on pre-sorted criteria or ad hoc meaning in the moment, a decision point which determines the next step based on the congruence or lack of congruence of the test completion. If you know the functional well-formed conditions, you'll be able to ask very specific and well-directed questions if your client has a problem with the strategy. Knowing the functional properties of a strategy will allow you to recognize when you receive an answer different to a question than the one asked. 
Now, I think a lot of times when we get into strategies, people start to do two things. One is they start looking at their own strategies and they go, whoa, my strategies are terrible. So first of all, let me free you up from that. Your strategies are fine. And one of my rules is if it isn't broken, don't fix it. And I think that's an important rule because people say all the time, let's change a strategy, let's do something about it. Well, if the strategy meets the well-formedness conditions and it's not a problem if it doesn't meet them, then it's not a problem for the client, then it isn't broken and you should not fix it. Now, the question is, is it causing a problem for the client? Is that really an issue? So let's look at page 57. If a strategy is not causing a problem for a client, it probably ought to remain the same as it is, even though you might feel you could benefit or the person could benefit from using a different strategy. You want to leave the strategy alone unless it's part of the presenting problem. Okay, so the way we install or change strategies includes rehearsing, reframing, metaphors, anchoring, and dissociated state rehearsal. So by rehearsing, what you're going to do is you're going to have the client move their eyes in certain directions while they rehearse the various parts of the strategy. Let's take a very simple strategy and see how we'd rehearse it. Let's take the reassurance strategy and say we wanted to install that in someone. So I'm just going to pick a reassurance strategy. So say we'd have a visual external with an auditory tonal and a kinesthetic. So the person would move their eyes into the visual, either visual recall or visual construct, depending on which one was appropriate. And they'd rehearse noticing a certain color in a certain shape. As we listen from the submodalities, then they would move their mm. eyes to auditory tonal and say, oh boy. And then they would have a feeling, a positive kinesthetic feeling after moving their eyes into kinesthetic. And that would be rehearsing the strategy. Now reframing, you can actually change the strategy for, through reframing. But my point of view is that anchoring is the most efficient way. You can also use a metaphor and tell a story about different representational systems and using them differently and a story about someone who had a strategy and changed it and they often work well but to me anchoring is probably the most important way to change the strategy if you're going to install a strategy or change a strategy using anchoring what you do is you simply anchor all the parts of the current strategy then you anchor the new part of the strategy if you're going to install a new part then you actually install it for example and this is a and actually a contained strategy. This example of strategy installation is actually on page, actually slide 66 on page 11 of the strategy section. Uh, slide number 66 of page 11. And so there's a diagram here and what it says is that I listened to the strategy. Well, first of all, let me tell you what the strategy was for this woman. I had a client who had a VK synesthesia for a buying strategy for her decision-making strategy. So she'd walk into a store, she'd see something she liked and she'd buy it. It's kind of a VK, whoa, I love that. See that? Love it, buy it, and she'd got home. And she ended up having to return about 50% of all the things that she bought, which was really messy. And so she came to me and said, I'd like to change the strategy because I'm really buying way too much. So we isolated and anchored each part of the strategy. So in this case, she had a visual and a kinesthetic, which we anchored. We anchored the, first, the visual first and we anchored the kinesthetic and then we installed in the middle of that the auditory digital. Now let me ask you a question. Why would we install auditory digital in the middle of that 
rather than after the kinesthetic. Well, the fact is, if we installed Elditry Digital after the kinesthetic, she might have already bought and then she tried to talk herself into it or out of it. So we put the auditory digital in the middle. We installed the visual with an anchor, installed the kinesthetic with an anchor, and then put the auditory digital in the middle. And I had her say to herself, do I really need this? And I anchored that in the middle step. Now we've got all three steps anchored and then we simply chain them together. So I had her move her eyes up and imagine something she liked or seeing something to remember seeing something she liked and then fire it off on the auditory digital. She'd say to herself, do I really need this? And then she'd get a feeling of whether she wanted it or not, and then she'd either buy it or not. And so I had her rehearse that several times, firing off the anchors each time. And I had her rehearse it both buying it and not buying it, so that each time she either bought it or didn't buy it. And then we could see in each case, or she could see in each case, um, either a positive or a negative kinesthetic, and she learned to recognize those. And when she came back a few days later, she actually said that her purchasing had dropped off by about 50%, which saved her a lot of money, which is awesome. And she said, this is really just a wonderful thing and you're going to get these wonderful results for your clients too. Okay, so now I want to talk about design principles and let's look at page 57. So first of all, you want to maintain the function which is what we clearly did with this client. This client was still able to buy things. Her strategy went haywire with the kinesthetic because she'd see something and want to buy it immediately. So we put the auditory digital in the middle. Um, now you'd reframe and use some modalities for unpleasant feelings or unpleasant voices if you need to. I once worked with a client who had a really, um, an incredibly difficult attraction strategy. And what would happen is his attraction strategy would be a woman would have to notice him for attraction. So a woman would have to approach him from a certain angle coming across the room at a certain angle and then she'd have to walk around behind him, talk in a certain ear and then come and talk to him. And before all of that had to happen before he even noticed that the person was attracted to him. Well, by deleting the unnecessary steps in between, this guy had a better sense of who was attracted to him and who wasn't. And by the way, it's improved his self-esteem as well. So you want to make sure that the criteria are accessed sequentially and not simultaneously. So if there's several criteria, you want them to go through each criteria one at a time. And then you want to make the least amount of change to get the results you want. So in a strategy redesign, you probably want to make up what you think would work. Remember, you're the practitioner of NLP and the clients are coming to you for assistance. You probably want to think through what you think would work and then ask the client if they think that that would be a good strategy to install. So check your own strategy, calibrate with the client and if they agree that it's something that's going to work for them, then go ahead. Now let's look at page 58. Now there are some representational system characteristics which I think are really important in terms of background, in terms of strategy design and strategy installation. I think that each representational system, each one of the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory and auditory digital can best represent the aspect of the world that responds to it or corresponds to it directly. Many people get into trouble by representing experience with the wrong representational system. So for example, they may represent a feeling visually and not be sufficiently in touch with the feelings. 
Other people may represent visual with a kinesthetic and can be overly in touch with the feelings. So sometimes a person can get trapped by a synesthesia and you can always anchor these synesthesias out. So digital descriptions are always auditory digital descriptions. They're always a secondary experience. So generally they'll contain less information than the primary experience which they're describing. If you want the client to have an experience which is a primary experience, you're probably going to need to go to either visual, auditory or kinesthetic. Remembering that auditory digital, and we'll talk more about that in the master prac, um, training is always a secondary experience and it has less information than the primary experience which is being described by the auditory digital. Now auditory digital is valuable. It's valuable as a filing system that can keep track of experience. It can categorize experience, it can plan and set directions, it can summarize, it can make a running commentary on raw data, it can draw conclusions and make sense of things and that's its job. The job of auditory digital is to make sense of things. Now auditory tonal can add emphasis and help flesh out raw data. But auditory digital's job is to make sense of things. Visual can represent an enormous amount of data simultaneously and instantaneously, and it can do very rapid comparison. So visual construct, visual recall is very useful for doing rapid comparisons. Auditory processing uh, takes longer than visual processing, which tends to be simultaneous. The kinesthetic system has more inertia and more duration than either the visual or auditory systems put together. So when making decisions, it's difficult to fully represent possibility using only sounds or words or feelings. The visual system is helpful because it enables one to simultaneously picture different options and make comparisons between them. And that's what we mentioned is usually pretty good. So kinesthetic, tactile and proprioceptive sensations help provide raw data. And kinesthetic meta is the way that people primarily evaluate their experience um, or congruent feelings or perceptual feelings of events involving direct tactile and proprioceptive sensations. And they're purely perceptual or sensory experiences without evaluation. Meta feelings are evaluated feelings about events, response to criteria, and usually have a positive or a negative feeling or a negative value. And they are what we usually call emotions or feeling states. Meta feelings can be created to past anchoring of experiences and or beliefs. Okay, now let's move on to motivation strategies. So if you have a client who comes in and wants to work with you on a motivation strategy, uh, let's turn to page 59. This will give you some ideas. People either move toward or away from. And remember we defined toward is moving toward what you want and away from is moving away from what you don't want. So people who move toward too strongly may avoid doing things which are necessary. So they may never getting around to get around to doing unpleasant things. Um, they may be necessary to do, however. So people who move away from never move until things get bad enough. So the key to motivation is to be able to easily and effortlessly do things that are unpleasant and most people don't need help doing the things that are pleasant. So the people who come to you for motivation strategies may need help in doing things that are unpleasant or that they don't want to do that will get them to the pleasant things that they do want to do. Motivation strategies are also related to procrastination 
strategies. They're the flip side of the same phenomena. And you remember that the intervention for procrastination we've already talked about, which is chaining anchors. The effects of an effective motivation strategy will be in the voice or present in auditory tonal. It will have a good tonality. The voice will use modal operators of possibility instead of necessity. Remember, that's words like it's possible rather than should to or have to or must. It will use a representation of what is desirable about the task um, rather than the consequences. So it'll be chunked appropriately and the person who's thinking about it won't be thinking in too much detail and then get overwhelmed, but also won't be thinking too big pictured and find out that they didn't get started on it in terms of its strategy. So frankly, that it'll result in stressing less. So if possible, towards strategies usually work better than away from and, and they usually work better than mixed strategies too. If you're going to do a mixed strategy which is what we do in Chaining Anchors, where we did an away from and then a towards, remember that you should do the away from first and the towards should be second. Good strategies generally work across contexts, which means that the strategy will be useful in more than one context. So check the strategy when you're testing it and make sure that it works in more than one context. And I think you should also check ecology before you remove any negative feelings or anxiety, you need to check the ecology to make sure that the client won't lose all their motivation. If the client does have their motivation change or disappear, then you may need to go on to values. And values are a master practitioner or part of the master practitioner training. And I think they're quite useful in determining and setting up motivation. So number 12, it may be necessary to adjust the submodalities of the representation of the task being done in order to get a strongly motivated response and you can adjust just adjust the sub modalities here and you may also need to adjust the values number 13 if representing the task as completed does not produce strong enough motivation then focus on the consequences number 14 remember that procrastinators are often good planners but we actually want to get them going so we'll use procrastination to motivation and we want to get them actually moving rather than just getting them thinking about moving. Here's some problems in motivation strategies. So let's look at page 16. Here's some problems with motivation strategies. Let's look at page 16. The client could be getting overwhelmed. So if the client begins with a feeling of overwhelm, then that means they're probably chunked too high. Remember, a client who says... I'm overwhelmed, and we talked about this in the hierarchy of ideas, will probably be overwhelmed about what? Everything. That's right. When the client said, when the, when the practitioner says, what are you overwhelmed about? The client will say everything. So you need to help the client by chunking down, and you may need to install a chunk down strategy in the process of motivation. Number two, some people move only away from, and sometimes things are actually achieved when they move away from but it may not be enough to motivate them or if they move away from regularly they may have too much stress too much anxiety and too much unpleasantness and therefore may not be motivated and so you may need to use timeline therapy to get rid of some of the anxiety and then change the values to increase the motivation again number three using modal operators of necessity a person may, may use modal operators of necessity with a harsh tonality and that could 
represent or result in bad feelings. For example, you should do this, you know. And if a client motivates themselves by saying that in a tone of voice with a kind of attitude, then they may not be as motivated as they could. And certainly there'll be bad feelings. And number four, by the way, there are some things that a person should move away from. For example, if there was a lion at your door, you better run like hell. If the wolf was going to come to eat you, you better be able to move out or get a gun or run away. But it's really important to be careful about removing away from strategies entirely. And it's probably better to design a strategy with both elements away and towards. Okay, now let's talk about problems with decision-making strategies. Sometimes people have problems generating options in making a decision. And that might mean that there's no visual construct or there's not enough options or choices. Often they limit themselves with an exclusive or. So that's where they say, oh, I have to do this or that. I can't decide whether I should do this or that. The answer, of course, is that they could do lots of other things other than just this or that. Sometimes clients limit themselves by having only one choice. In any case, you can also add in a number of choices by simply changing the decision-making strategy. Another possibility, of course, is the person generates too many choices with no way to exit, no way to get out. And then these are the people who say, oh, I've got so many things I could do, but I can't possibly decide about what I want to do. So all of those can be cleaned up by simply changing the strategy. And you have to talk to the client and find out if you have to talk to the client and find out what they need to change the chunk size to. Okay, number two, there may be a problem representing what the options are in the decision-making strategy. Options may not be represented in all representational systems, which makes it difficult to evaluate them. The person may need to go external to get data to represent the options, and options and criteria may not be revised according to what's going on in their environment. So they may have outdated options or criteria. And all of those can be cleared up by simply having the person go external. Number three, the problems may include evaluating the options. There may be criteria for selection which are inappropriate, or their criteria or values may not be prioritized. Generally, when a criteria a client has a criteria problem, the criteria are considered sequentially and separately rather than simultaneously. And a polarity response is an example. So if a person has criteria problems, it may be necessary to go in, in and fix those in terms of working with their values. And that's something that we learn in Master Practitioner. So if you need values work done, I suggest you get in contact with one of our Master Practitioners. Now let's move on to learning strategies. From time to time, you may have someone who comes to you with a problem in learning, and it might be a client or a student that wants to learn something. It might be kids, and NLP gets really great results with kids, and they're pretty simple to work with. In spite of the fact that we're giving you a lot of data and a lot of information, it's actually very simple to work with a child. This is how you do it. Pop on to page 61, and these are some things I think you ought to think about when you're working with kids. So first of all, you want the learning strategy to begin in a positive state. If the student or you think of a time when you succeeded and felt good rather than failed and felt bad, you're going to have a better learning strategy. Learning is really inhibited by having negative emotions and negative states in the person's physiology at the time. So you want the client or the child to access 
and anchor the appropriate resources. Number two, you want to chunk appropriately. And I think you want to chunk down the tasks in order to avoid overwhelm. So chunking down, remember, means getting specific enough so that we're not overwhelmed about everything. Like, oh my God, I've got all this homework to do. Well, what specifically do you need to do? And chunk down and begin to start working on each of the segments of homework rather than all of it. And then recycle or go external until you can represent the smaller chunks so as to sequence and prioritize them. Number three, you want to get relative and appropriate feedback um, to the task being learned, which means the feedback that the student receives needs to be relative to the task that the student is learning. Number four, you want to make appropriate comparisons that give one a feeling of accomplishment. Do not make any comparisons to experts. Because your ideas of your own ability is about you, not of that of an expert. But one of the problems in many training situations or teaching situations is that the person who's teaching seems an expert. They seem so far ahead of us at times that we compare ourselves to that expert or to that ideal. And what we do is we come up short. So it's really important not to compare yourself to an expert, but compare yourself to your own ability in the past. Okay, number five, the exit. There's a couple of things you need to avoid the dangers of exiting too soon. When you exit something you're learning too soon, you get premature closure. I don't know if you know, but I know a lot of people who've attained premature closure on a lot of different things. I once had a fellow come up to me and say, um, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an NLP trainer. He said, oh, I know NLP. I've read Frogs into Princess. Now, me too, but it's just one NLP book. And that's obviously someone who exited too soon and they believed that they'd learned everything there is to learn. So exit when you've learned enough for now and when you've learned something well enough to get your outcome. I think you should also avoid the trap of chasing clarity where you think you need to know everything about it and be totally clear about it before you proceed. Remember that all important decisions are made on the basis of insufficient information. Number six, I think you should expect not to understand some things. And I think those things that a student doesn't understand can be set aside and you can come back to them later. I think you should avoid getting trapped in bad feelings about not understanding. And remember that understanding itself is a feeling. Number seven, know your submodality equivalents of understanding and use them to get information in the necessary form. Now we haven't really discussed that yet, but think about this for a moment with regard to submodalities, something that you probably remember now and understand a little bit better. If you think about something that you totally understand and you go, yes, I understand it, and you think about that, and notice that it's quite a bit different from something which you don't understand. The submodalities of understanding could be useful, and if you take that and apply it to something you don't understand and you map across the submodalities, then you may change the feeling about whether or not you understand it. And it's the feeling that's the problem, not the actual not understanding. And that's useful for helping a student who seems stuck or has a feeling of, oh my God, I'll never learn this. It's too complicated or complex. There's too much to it. In which case, simply have them change the submodalities to the submodalities of understanding. Number eight, I think you need to future pace learning to the times and places in which it'll be needed. So here are some elicitation questions for learning strategies. 
And I think probably first of all, you ought to contextualize the learning. So if you're working with a student, um, contextualize it by subject matter, or for example, to spelling or grammar or learning or reading or math, categorize it and get really specific about the content because sometimes people will use different strategies for understanding maths versus spelling versus reading, one of which they may love and the other which they may not like. So the elicitation questions. Think of a time when you are able to learn something easily and rapidly. How do you know it's time to begin learning? What do you do in order to learn? How do you know if you've learned something? And what lets you know that you've learned something fully? So those are the questions and they're quite important in eliciting learning strategies. So now we're going to move on to spelling strategy. So let me give you the full story. In a spelling strategy, the steps, of course, to discover to utilize, to change, to design and to install, we find out what steps someone's using. We'd use the strategy to assist a student in learning. We automate a new sequence so it becomes part of the person's unconscious process. Changing also includes the process of designing and streamlining what's already there in order to make it more effective. Or we could install a new strategy from scratch. So spelling strategy elicitation, you want to start at the beginning and you say, I give you a word, what's the first thing you do on the inside? Then you can backtrack and go on. So first, blah, 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 blah. Then what do you do? And then what do you do? And then you say, when you hear or see or feel that, how do you know that it's right? And only get as much detail as you need. So remember that first of all, bad spellers are made, they're not born. And bad spellers are not learning disabled, they were teacher disabled. So here are some inappropriate spelling strategies. Let's begin with a negative kinesthetic. They begin with a bad feeling. Some people sound out the strategy phonetically. And by the way, you can't even read phonetics phonetically. So think about for that for a moment. If you know phonetics sounded out, it only gives you 50% accuracy. Whereas if you use a visual construct, that's really creative spelling, but it isn't really the way to do it. So the best way to do it, of course, is with visual recall. Now, an excellent spelling strategy, if they're asked to spell the word, they may repeat the word internally. They see the word and they visually remember it, or they may defocus rapidly. And the way that you can tell if a person is visualizing a word is you have to ask them to spell it backwards and they'll be able to do that rapidly. So you ask the child to spell the word backwards. So you can tell whether or not they're visualizing it. And that's going to be really important if you're working with a spelling strategy. Do they have a feeling of familiarity or not? And you want to look for a shift in breathing or gestures. And I think how a good speller, like how good a speller they are may depend on what they read. Now, if a client doesn't get any feeling of familiarity, you could have them do a visual construct until they get the feeling of familiarity. And I think you need a second strategy for words for which no memory image exists. And then they have a final kinesthetic, be a motivator for continual improvement. So let's talk about how to install a spelling strategy. We're on page 63. I think when you're working with a student, you want to check and make sure that they're normally organized. So first of all, ask them the eye pattern questions on page 20. Use the eye patterns chart and ask them those questions and see if they're normally organized or reversed organized. 
And the simplest method for installing a spelling strategy is rehearsal. And you can reframe it if you need to. But basically you say, I'm going to give you a word. And as soon as I do, I want you to look up here and then hold your hand and visually remember it. Allow an image of the word to appear. And as soon as it does, look down here and get a feeling of familiarity. Then you use simple words initially and you have them spell the words in reverse. Now here are some common problems with spelling strategies. People try to create the word while looking at visual remembered. So you say, can you look up here and wait until you see the word the way you've seen it before? Allow the image to pop up. If people draw a blank or if a kid draws a blank, then write out the word and hold it up in their visual remembered so that they can see it there. Have them look at it and close their eyes and see it internally as a memory image. Hold up the word for a short period of time. If you hold it up too long, some people will try to describe it rather than seeing it in their memory. Number four, have them visualize the word on something they can remember easily. And then number five, a person may keep going back to their old strategy rather than using the new one. So you need to reframe and do a dissociated state rehearsal if necessary. So that's spelling strategies. Let me talk for a moment about why my intervention and what I generally do with kids when I'm working with them. And this is a complete intervention for both dyslexia and also a complete intervention for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And this is what I typically, typically do when I'm working with a child. Okay, let's talk about dyslexia first. So typically I'll say to the child, how do you spell success? And then I'll watch the child and look to see if they go down into the kinesthetic. Now, let me go big picture here for a minute. I'm, I'm going to tell you a story about a nine-year-old girl that I worked with and she had dyslexia. And she'd been branded dyslexic and she also had ADHD. And they'd put her on Ritalin and she was on Ritalin for a year before I saw her. And when I saw her, she was just sitting on the chair and slapping the chair. I think I talked about some of this in the rapport section. So I matched and mirrored her using my foot. And once I'd matched and mirrored her enough, what, what I did with her is I actually just slowed it down. And that was good because then she stopped slapping the chair because that was kind of distracting. And then I asked, what are you good at? And she said, I want to be the trampolining champion. Now, here's the thing. She was a child of nine years old. So she had a real potential reality to be a state or national or even Olympic trampolining champion. Although the fact that she is using her body for something like that, it probably indicates to me that she's going to be spelling using kinesthetics. And when you're spelling using kinesthetics, I wouldn't be surprised if you flip letters or switch letters around or get letters mixed up. Because you're not, like spelling isn't done with kinesthetics, it's done with visuals. So I figured here's a young girl who's using kinesthetics to spell and she was probably dyslexic and she probably got quite frustrated and she also didn't know how to sit still in class. So the first thing I did was I taught her the visual spelling strategy and the visual spelling strategy went like this. All you do is take a piece of paper and you write the word I use. I like the word success because when a child spells success, 
then they can go and get success. And so I wrote the word success on a piece of paper and the first half of the word I wrote in blue and the second half of the word in red. So suck I wrote in blue and cess in red. And then I said to the child, I said to her, go ahead and spell. And I held it up in her visual recall. Now she was normally organized and I'd already checked that out by asking the questions on page 24 and determined that the eye patterns were normally organized. I think it's definitely important to determine that first. Some children may, actually while we're on that point, some children may be ambidextrous still and so they may not have a consistent place where they look for words. So then you just have to check their eye patterns first. So I held up the word success and she spelled it forward several times. So I said spell the blue suck and now spell the red cess and spell the blue now spell the red and she did that several times until I thought it was drilled in and then I said okay now close your eyes and spell the blue and she said suck and now spell the red cess and now with your eyes closed spell the red and he said cess and the blue suck and then I asked her to spell it backwards and she spelled it backwards perfectly which surprised her and surprised her mum who was sitting there. Her mum was like there staring with her mouth open going whoa. And here she is, this girl that's intelligent but hasn't been able to spell, now spelling success backwards in a matter of minutes. Now that's a very positive experience for the child and for the mother. So I said to her, you've got a perfect visual memory and I've got bad news for you. You've either got to use it or lose it. And so I want you to use it. And the way you spell words is you put them up in visual recall. And I said, you need to look at them up there and then you need to keep them there and then you need to remember them there. And then when you go to take the test, you look up there to find them. So we tried several different words and she got very good in less than half an hour at spelling words forwards and backwards. Now what was important about this point is that she wanted to be a trampolining champion and I think that every child who comes to see you has a tremendous amount of potential, especially if they're learning disabled. And most kids, by the way, who are ADD or dyslexic usually are above average intelligence. The problem is, is that they're moving really quickly. So they're spelling things in different ways from the ways teachers think they should. So the first thing that we taught this girl was the visual spelling strategy. She became excited about learning other things. And so the next thing I said to her was, how would you like to learn a technique that will make time go faster? And then you'll be able to spend more time trampolining because that's what you want to do. You'll get better results on your tests and your quizzes and your mum won't get you in trouble and the teacher won't get you in trouble. And she said, yeah, I'd really like to do that. And I think that it's really important that when you work with a child, you want to make sure that the child wants to be there because if they don't, they'll punish you. And so I always ask the child, what are you doing here? And if the parent tries to answer, I make sure that the child answers instead. You need to make sure that they want to be there for themselves and that way you have more leverage, right? You can help them with techniques. Anyway, so I asked her whether she wanted more time and she said, yes, I'd, I'd love that. And 
make sure you're not driving a car at this point and just do this really quickly with me. So we taught her the learning state, which we've already taught you and we'll do it in a really different way inside the training room. But you just stare at the dot and move your eyes out to the side and you go into a light trance and it makes everything easier. So what I said to her was, can you pick a spot on the wall? And as you pick a spot on the wall, say up there, and I have them pick a spot on the wall that's above eye level and usually above the midline, maybe even on the ceiling. So her eyes sort of have to bump up into the field of vision and bump up against the eyebrows. And I say, go ahead and pick that spot on the wall. And as you look at that spot on the wall, notice within a matter of moments that you can see things in your peripheral vision. If you look at that spot on the wall and you totally focus on it, take every scrap of your attention and totally focus on that spot on the wall, you can actually see things in your peripheral vision. Now, if you're doing this while you're listening to this, you'll notice within a matter of moments, having focused totally on the spot on the wall, that you can begin to see things in your periphery. In fact, you may want to just test and see how far into the peripheral you can see. Some people can very quickly see all the way around 180 degrees. You can look and notice if you're just holding your eyes steady on that thing on the spot on the wall. Notice if you can see all the way around to your right and take your hand if you want to and move your hand around to the right and see how far you can see your hand, but it's usually about 180 degrees. And then take your other hand and go out to the left and see how far you can see there. And you'll notice that that's probably about 180 degrees as well. Now, keeping your attention all the time on the spot on the wall. Now notice as you sit there, your attention in the peripheral that you can then bring your eyes down and look at something in your field of vision directly in front of you, but still keeping all of your awareness in the peripheral. And you can calibrate with the child. If you actually look at the child, you can see the child and you can tell when they're in that state. In fact, we worked with a 12-year-old boy last week who um, had attention deficit disorder. And we showed him how to do this. And in a matter of moments, it just calmed him right down, like completely calm. Because you'll see there's a shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic functioning. And so if you can teach the child to go into this state while they're in the classroom, and that remember we talked about the trapdoor opening up when they're in the classroom. So you walk into the classroom, you open up the trapdoor by going into the learning state, and then the teacher pours in all the information into your brain. And then at the end of the day, you just close the trapdoor to your brain, or the end of that class, like before recess, you close your trapdoor and then you go out and play. And then next time you come back in the classroom, you open it up again. If you can teach a child how to use the learning state for being in class and for remembering information and recalling information and regurgitating it, then what will happen is two things. First of all, their grades will go up. And secondly, they'll actually feel happier. And we'll go a little bit more into trance when you're in the training room.